power on. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo! The rebellion of mind, body, and tech is here for you, baby. It is the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, ready to, well, I mean... <laughs> We're on the home stretch here to get into 2021, but uh, it's not without its surprises still. And we've got a few that we're going to end up talking about here, but let me open it up. Well, speaking of a surprise, actually, uh, and we're, we're going to get into a few conversations around the, as, uh, as we coined it years ago, long before any other tech journalists were talking about it, hashtag Amazon world domination tour. Well, as we talked about, this was three or four episodes ago when we discussed that I got an invite, or should I say Sovereign Tech got an invite, which I mean, granted, that's kind of me, but you know, Sovereign Tech got an invite to be available on launch day for when Amazon planned on putting out podcasts through one of their platforms. Now, the invite email that I got was for Audible, which I thought was the more interesting, as well as Amazon Music. I'm kind of surprised. So just a few days ago, in fact, if you follow me on Twitter at Sovereign Tech, S-O-V-R-Y-N, of course, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see where I announced it on, on launch day. They tried to make a big deal out of it with their own hashtag, the whole thing. And this was just a few days ago. Um, I So so they, they have included, or now podcasts are available in Amazon Music. Now, ultimately... Like we talked about some episodes ago when I first got this email, A, I'm impressed by the quick turnaround because this was basically within a month that they that they made this happen. Um, but also it's pretty clear, and, and I mean, I understand why it's happening in September, right? Because you've got, uh, I think people are shaking up where they're going to get their podcasts, partly because the whole Joe Rogan deal is supposed to be going down this month, if I remember correctly, but regardless. Uh, Amazon Music is really their direct competitor to Spotify and Spotify is the company that's making serious inroads and moves with exclusive content, uh, particularly with podcasting, right? Again, with the aforementioned Joe Rogan deal, which is, you know, akin to like Howard Stern and Sirius, right? Sirius XM. Um, all of this is to say, I, I understand 
why they might have gone with Amazon Music first, right? As far as why are they putting podcasts up there? Maybe they were seeing, okay, what does this look like before we start introducing it into Audible? Which again, I think doing it with Audible, that just, there's no way that Amazon Music has 50 million subscribers. I don't believe it. Unless, I mean, there, well, Unless there is a demographic of people that were really hot about their $50 fire tablets. Right. And, but then also I I debate how much that demo, you know, listens to a lot of podcasts. I'm not sure, but it is, let's be clear here. They are, Amazon is not scraping podcasts. You have to submit to it. They are not just allowing anything onto their platform. In fact, I was kind of surprised at how few, um, I mean, there, there's a certain group of podcasts that years ago, really sovereign tech kind of co, uh, how to put this co cropped out of. Okay. Um, and a lot of those podcasts, which might come from similar, shall we say ideal, or I don't like the word ideology, but ideological persuasions that you might think I'm a part of. Um, I didn't see any of those there. Uh, I was, I was really, really surprised by that. And I'm not sure what's behind that. Again, when we talked about this the first time, I didn't know what the criteria was for getting invited. I never reached out to Amazon. Okay. Again, they reached out to me. They just, they, they sent me an email and, you know, again, I, I really have no idea what the criteria is. Um, I really think it would be smart of them to, I mean, maybe they're testing out what this looks like, you know, again, for Amazon music, but the smartest thing they can do is get access to whatever it is, 50 million subscribers, however many it is for, for audible, get on the audible app. It just makes sense. I mean, they're already advertising a lot of their, um, you know, audible only content as podcasts anyway. So let's, let's get the influx going. Maybe this is just phase one of that. And eventually it'll be on, on audible. Like I said, when it gets on audible, then we figure out just how interesting that, you know, as, as far as, because I think for a lot of podcasters and certainly I don't mind, I mean, that's why I have, uh, you know, sponsors and advertisers because, you know, I like making money off of what I do, even though I do this completely out of passion. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, it, this could offer really, really great opportunities for independent voices that are only on podcasts to, you know, make money from doing the, the real, perhaps the real journalism that they do, the real entertaining that they do, uh, you know, what, whatever, whatever their podcasts take shape as. Um, I think it'd be wonderful if they could make a few bucks off of it due to being part of Audible in some way. Again, we don't know that that's going to happen. And certainly I am not making any money off of the fact that it's on Amazon Music, which has like somewhat of a quasi free tier or a tier that comes along with your Amazon Prime subscription. But then there's also like an $8 tier or something along those lines uh, where it does become much more like your premium Spotify. Uh, You know, I'm not making any money off of that whatsoever. But again, with Audible, I think there might be some very interesting opportunities for that because there have been podcasts for sale on Audible for a decade now. I mean, like that, that's, that's not unheard of for that to be a thing. Anyway, um, I, or Sovereign Tech is one of the podcasts available on Amazon Music. So if you are, if that is something that you rock, in fact, I reviewed Amazon Music, oh, about two years ago, I think it was. And my review was very favorable. I thought the UI was brilliant. Um, I mean, screw Alexa, but at the same time, like it's integration into Amazon music 
was everything that I really wanted and kind of did have with Cortana in Windows 10, where you could, you know, say to it, play this song. And the nice thing with, of course, more so with Cortana was that it could access your local library, right? Um, while with Amazon Music, it didn't do that. It did do like the voice recognition was fantastic for that sort of thing. And when you're driving, I mean, that's pretty handy. And the way you could command an album or a specific song or whatever, I mean, Again, that data gets collected, and I understand that better than anybody, obviously, if you listen to this show. Um, but for what it was, it worked really, really well. Um, so for that to be able to take commands to play, and, you know, that's a key part of this here, too, is that this ultimately will probably, I mean, you know what, actually, now that I think of it, maybe because of native integration, more more native integration, I know Spotify integrates well with, uh, with Alexa, maybe with more native integration, it you know, playing podcasts through and, and, and using Amazon music that maybe Amazon music is actually very popular because a lot of people have, you know, an echo. Right. And I just don't realize that, but I, I had a hard time finding subscriber numbers for that. Easy to find the numbers for audible. They don't mind touting those because they're, you know, cause it's a massive platform and it really crushes their, uh, their competition, <laughs> even though there's barely competition. I know there's, I know, look, I know they're out there, but by the numbers, I mean, they're just, they're getting destroyed, uh, by audible, but with Amazon music, you don't, you, they don't readily share those numbers. Uh, so I wish I knew, but anyway, it's out there. Sovereign tech's available. Uh, I'm spending way longer than I expected on that, but I mean, it is important to get out there. I mean, this is again, we, I, I don't, I don't want to coin this term, but there's very much a podcast platform war going on, not not podcast wars. I don't know that many podcasts going after each other. Oh, no, I, I know quite a few that are going after each other, but, um, but a pot, a real platform wars happening with podcasting right now. And well, this is one of those parts of it that's heating up. So anyway, let's move on to, uh, to other matters. In fact, following up from a couple episodes ago, uh, we did a full, full coverage and this was based on, uh, information sent to me also. Uh, by uh, Mozilla developers. I actually had a couple others reach out to me after I did the, the, the podcast or they particularly for Firefox. Um, and some listeners shared the info on me and, or, or with me and then other, you know, I mean, news organizations have come out with it and, and let it be known uh, about the massive shakeup that happened and restructuring that happened at, uh, at Mozilla. Um, and we did a full coverage on this and basically I can no longer 100% recommend using Firefox as to where previously I'd say that without blinking, not to say it didn't have its problems. Okay. But previously I, I just, yeah, use Firefox, right? You know, I mean, it was just, it was such an easy recommendation and no longer now. I mean, let's be clear here because I did get some flack for that as well. Got some very supportive messages and people seem to get my argument. Okay. But and we've got a little bit of a, of a story here to, to during the foreplay where we talk about all the little stories. Okay. And we've got a little bit of something to get into here to, to prove my point even more. And really the point of many of the developers that reached out. Um, because, well, all right, a lot of people emailed and said, look, Firefox is still far better than XYZ, far better than Chrome, far better than the, even if they, you know, close source some stuff off, or even if they did this, you know, it's still a solid option, blah, 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 blah. I get where you're coming from, but you got to understand a, you have to understand the language that Mozilla has been pushing around Firefox for, well, I mean, ever since it existed for one, but 
particularly really since the Snowden revelations years ago. Okay. You know how they are all about privacy. They're all about this. They're all about creating an open internet. They're all about blah, 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 you know? Okay. And when they set for themselves, it's not even what I necessarily put on them, but what they set for themselves as such a high bar for them to start falling away from that bar, which they more or less kept up with, uh, that, that is a bad sign. So yes, we hold them to a higher standard, but that comes from their own, you know, development philosophy of the past. And if they're going to break away from that, which they are, again, we had devs coming out saying this is an entirely new company. As soon as we hear that, uh, yeah, we, we got to pause and reflect. And if you thought, well, we don't really know, we got to wait and, and see and ta- see how this is going to take shape at, at Mozilla. Maybe everything's going to be, you know, run just as normal. Well, here's a, here's a, a bit of annoyance. And again, uh, what we called the new Mozilla. And that's, that's really what it should be called. If, if you want to get fancy, maybe we could put NU and then Mozilla, right? Um, but they have, uh, this is particularly, I got the story from Android police and you can find the link in the show notes. Not that there's a whole lot to read on it, uh, from September 17th. So very fresh, just a few days ago. Um, they, Mozilla is canceling send and notes to fairly popular features. Now send has been offline throughout much of, uh, well, much of the summer really, Um, Of course, Steve Gibson reported about that on security now for many months. And the argument goes from Mozilla is that the reason they can't, or the reason that they stopped development and, and, and took send offline is because their claim was, was that there were uh, phishing attacks and distributed malware uh, attacks being, being carried out using send. Now, that, that logic <laughs> just doesn't send was a great look. All right, real quick. Send was a fantastic product. Okay. And like, what did they, they increased it to 2.5 gig. I think towards the end of the size of the file you could send, it was so easy. It was encrypted. Like it was just a nice, simple solution that I would have kept around. Now, granted it might come back in a premium software suite, which we've talked we've theorized and, Mozilla, or at least old Mozilla was hinting at for some time. I mean, I guess now everything's up in the air, uh, but send was, was awesome. I mean, that, that was file transfer done, right. You know, I mean, like a solid, or I mean, as, as close to a solid implementation as say like onion chair or something. I mean, it was just, it was really, really, really well done. I really, really liked that service. Another one that I had no problem recommending. Um, and since it's already been offline for months, they, I guess they basically just said, no, well, we're not going to bring it up either. But you know, the argument around, well, because it's being used for phishing attacks or it's being used for distributed malware, we, you know, we, we, we don't want to, we don't want to let it stay live. I mean, what then should all companies stop email, <laughs> right? Look, this is the nature of open technologies, which I thought Mozilla was about. The nature of open technologies is that they can be, they're just tools. They can be used for harm uh, or they can be used for good. And I have a very hard time believing that the, the bad uses of this was, was somehow, uh, you know, somehow outweighed the, uh, you know, the, the net negative somehow outweighed the good, somehow out, outweighed the positive uses. I, I have a very hard time believing that. I'd more believe that basically what happened is it, 
And I, you know, this takes me back to a little bit of OneDrive gate and I don't want to spend a ton of time on that. Um, but it, it kind of takes me back and it really makes me think about how a part of me wonders when, you know, like when Microsoft was offering unlimited, uh, uh, storage space, I feel like a lot of, not that malware was getting sent or phishing or phishing attacks were, were being engaged in or whatever. I think the pressure, uh, the greater pressure probably came from the entertainment industry and you know, they can't stop torrents, right? Cause it's peer to peer. Well, they can stop whatever has a centralized server. And both OneDrive and, of course, Microsoft Send had those, uh, you know, that that allowed for their main operation. So basically, <laughs> I think that the entertainment industry, you know, put the squeeze on. And and I'm, I'm just theorizing here, okay? I don't have any facts on this. If any of those devs from, or ex-devs from Mozilla wants to get in touch with me, okay, you know the ways. And, you know, go ahead and, and, you know, if you have any info on this, you know, maybe we'll talk about it if I can get it verified. Uh, and I'm very careful to, I, I don't like, I'll speculate, but I'm not going to, I, I hate leakers that you can't like really independently verify that you can't get from a bunch of sources or whatever that I really, I really have a problem with reporting on that sort of thing. So anyway, but you can let me know if this is actually the case. Uh, but, but that's what I feel like is that the entertainment industry probably put on the squeeze and they did not want something even easier than torrents, uh, available for people to share quote unquote copyrighted content. That's what I believe. Now the shutting down of notes, that's, that's weird. And I liked notes. It was nice. I mean, you just, you had a little app, very lightweight that you would install on your Android phone. And I think that's the only place that it was available. You install it on your Android phone. And then there was just like a little notes, uh, uh, field that you could open up on, on a sidebar on, on Mozilla, you know, on Firefox. Uh, and you could, you could share encrypted notes. It was very handy. I, for a while, I actually used that, um, for the show notes for this very show for, for sovereign tech. For a long time, I did that. Uh, and it worked really, really well to have that kind of, I mean, it was just, it, it was really solid. Um, why this got shut down? I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine unless it is going to be a future feature, you know, take it away now and then come in a few months when they uh, decide to offer a Firefox premium subscription service, then they re-include it. Might end up being true for send as well. Uh you know, I, I could imagine that happening. I could see that sort of thing happening because otherwise, I mean, it's just text. It's literally just text that's getting shared encrypted. Yes. Uh, and it, it just, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, you, you can't really make a buck off of it, at least not at its present state. Um, it's not something that could get released for iOS. And so maybe investors or, well, Mozilla doesn't have investors. Maybe the, <sighs> People involved in Mozilla said, well, we can't make a buck off of this thing because it's not on iOS. And if it's not on iOS, you don't make any money, all of which is completely untrue. There are developers that make fine money on Android. Um, the, the idea that, I, well, anyway, we've talked about the whole Apple nonsense and, you know, the, the Apple tax, as it were, in the App Store uh, in recent episodes. So we don't have to go down that road again. Um, but this is, I mean, this just goes to show here's your new, whatever the reason being, okay. They're, they're, they're not being transparent as to what's going on here. I think that much is that much is for sure. So welcome to the new Mozilla. 
canceling services that people loved and used, uh, you know, encrypted services, which would be all about privacy, right? And, you know, and so on. Uh, and now they're, they're gone. What's next? Anyway, as far as what's next on Sovereign Tech, let's get into uh, the next subject here. You know, actually, speaking of web browsers, let me, let me talk about this for a second here. Um, I was impressed by, so for uh, my work outside of Sovereign Tech, I actually use on my main laptop, I use a separate web browser. And the web browser I like to use um, is a portable implementation, meaning that I have it on an SD card, okay, and I pop it into a Windows machine, and I can use that with portable apps, portableapps.com. I don't mind, they're not a sponsor, but I don't mind talking about them. I've been using them for over a decade now. Uh, you know, it, that way I can, whatever computer that I happen to be on, or I can bring it with me, and I, I mean, and I've done this, where I've had to use, and granted, you be fucking careful when you do this sort of thing, but there's part of the advantages here. I'll talk about it. Um, I, you know, I, I've used this even at hotel computers over the years where say I didn't have access to mine quickly. Or, um, if I was visiting, you know, if we were visiting friends or whatever, uh, I would, you know, say, Hey, could, could I just borrow your computer for a minute? They'd log in as a guest and I could just pop in my SD card or my micro SD card. And in a way I go, I have all of my, you know, work stuff right on that nice 256 gig micro SD card. And with portable apps, you know, there are some web browsers you can run. Granted, that number has been decreasing on what you can. But um, the one that I use is actually Opera GX. Now, not just Opera. That's available on there as well. But I use Opera GX. Now, the reason that I use that. All right. First off, I have been, again, very complimentary towards Opera over the years, especially if you're getting away from Mozilla, because now Mozilla is basically becoming like every other company. Uh, at that stage, you know why not opera? Right. <laughs> I mean, if you're using windows 10, like I've said, you know, using edge now, uh, because you know, that creates less accounts and so on is certainly an interesting option. Um, but anyway, you know, opera is, is out there. And of course we've talked about Vivaldi, you know, and others, I mean, again, the browser wars have really, really changed now that we have the new Mozilla. And I would argue mostly not for the better anyway. So the reason that I use opera GX is not because it's opera. Um, I mean, it's handy, that opera, you know, you can install, there's an, an extension you can install that allows you to run, um, you know, add-ons extensions from the Chrome web store. That's, that's very handy. Uh, opera has a lot of uh, native extensions anyway, you know, like LastPass, um, whole slew of them, uBlock origin, even, I mean, just a, a bunch of different ones. Uh, opera also has a built-in VPN and a built-in ad blocker. Their ad blocker isn't exactly the best. Their VPN is sending all of that information to China. Uh, keep that in mind, but those are certainly interesting features. Anyway, the reason I use opera GX over standard opera now, opera GX is a gaming web browser. We talked about it when it first came out a couple of years ago. Um, it's, it's meant to be for gamers and it just has all these like nice little UI touches and features and everything, which I have to give opera a lot of credit. They have consistently tried to make quantum shifts in what a web browser looks like and does uh, more so I think than any other company. And the, you know, they they'll put out little projects like opera GX. What I think opera next was another one at one point uh, that looked really, you know, kind of futuristic and everything. Anyway, so opera GX offers the ability to tailor just how much resources the web browser is taking. This is really fucking handy. 
Okay. And it might be something you want to consider, especially if you have like an older machine or something like that. Like you can tell it how much Ram it can use. You can tell it how much CPU it can use. You can even tell it now as a version 2.0, which just came out recently. And that's what actually brought me up to talk about this. You can now tell it, uh, how much network bandwidth to take. Um, there is a way to see like very quickly see what tabs and they give it to you by name. I mean, it's one thing you can hit, you know, uh, uh, control alt delete, whatever. And you could bring up the task manager in windows and you can see, especially if it's like a, you know, a multi-process browser like Chrome and so on, you can see what browser tabs or, you know, what browser browser processes are really, really hogging resources. The problem is you can't tell what tab you could shut it down from task manager, but you can't really tell what tab is doing it. As to where with Opera GX, it gives you the name of the tab. It tells you the site, you know, whatever that you're on, and you can shut it down right from there. It's called like hot tab killer. Uh, I mean, really, really slick feature. So that's why I use that because particularly when you're already running it off of an SD card, you want it to take it a little easy on the resources, but then also when it's something that's more or less just running in the background and you have your main processes going on in the rest of the machine and another web browser, you know, personal stuff or stuff related to sovereign tech and so on. Um, you know, you, you don't want it hogging all your resources. Okay. So it's very, very handy to have that. But when they updated, I, I, I think it's, or they call it level two, not version 2.0, but Opera GX level two. Of course, it's a game, it's supposed to be a gaming browser. So it makes sense that they would name it that. Um, I was just, just totally, uh, it, they were such simple concepts, but frankly, they kind of blew me away. <laughs> like it was amazing how well they worked in execution. Um, so for a while, Opera, not just Opera GX, but Opera has had the ability to, on the left-hand side, taking advantage of, much like Firefox can, and we know that Microsoft Edge is going to, where they're going to have vertical tabs instead of the ones running across the top, which I, I you know, I'm a big fan of as well. Um, they have a bunch of stuff on, on the left-hand side of the browser, including you can integrate with WhatsApp Web, you can integrate with Telegram. Um, which I have used actually to, you know, communicate with the Sovereign Tech Telegram group. You want to join that? Link is in the show notes all over the place. Can't miss it. Okay. And it's, it's always great conversations happening there. Some of the stories from this episode are actually coming from that. Now, uh, you can also, oh, what are some of the other ones that you can have over there? I mean, if you're into any of Facebook's products, like Instagram is there, uh, you can have Facebook Messenger there. And it's just like a quick little window that you can get the notification for one on the left-hand side but you don't have to have it like actually as a full tab open. And then you can just click on it and it just comes out of the sidebar, you know, and shows you whatever your messages and everything. And, and they just added Twitter. And that is a really slick little feature as well. Um, having Twitter there, you know, always at the ready and letting you know when there's a, you know, a new notification and everything and just kind of always open. Yes, that's taking up some resources, but there's more. <laughs> Let's keep going. And there's other like Twitch is available. I mean, there's all kinds. Um, now they also allow for on the left-hand side. Uh, and this, when you, when you update to level two for Opera GX, it gives you the option to turn these on. Um, and that is there's now you can play this ambient music that shifts with your browser activity. And it's just this nice low key ambient music. I fucking love it. And it actually works really well. Now, I mean, especially when I'm doing work, you know, uh, particularly like say in PR and some other things, 
you know, a lot of times I have to do a lot of creative thinking, a lot of writing. Uh, the other nice thing is that, and, and, and this is funny what it, what it made me feel like doing. Okay. Um, and, and it took me forever to figure out what this was. I, I could never understand. Sometimes when I was working on, on one of my laptops, I would hear a typewriter as I was typing. I'm like, what, what fucking software is doing that? <laughs> like, and it could only be what I was working on. But like, I was like, what, what was, what was producing the sound? Why was the sound coming? And that is a feature of Opera GX where, it, and it, it sounds good. It sounds like a typewriter. It's really, really nice. Um, and now with the ambient music and the soft tapping of the typewriter sound, I basically always want to write an Opera GX now <laughs> because it's, it's such a great focusing. I mean, again, that ambient music and then the sound of the typewriter really does, you know, keep you focused on the task and keeps you going. Uh, I love it. I want to write an Opera GX all the time. It's, it's, I mean, and I'm sure that there are word processors, more traditional word processors that allow for that sort of thing, or it's just as easy enough to, you know, open up an ambient sound file on VLC, uh, or whatever. But I really, really thought that that was a, that was a nice touch, uh, for, for Opera GX to, to put in. I mean, amongst a, a slew of already great, uh, touches, like how it blocks, um, a lot of cryptocurrency miners. Okay. Not that I'm anti-cryptocurrency. No, we love Bitcoin on the show. You understand we've been talking about it forever. Um, but you know, that, that's nice to, to, I, I mean, because also while they're block, they're blocking, right. While Opera natively, or at least you have the feature to block, uh, you know, crypto miners, Okay. When you visit websites or whatever, they also bake in kind of like brave, but I mean, they bake in a crypto wallet into both the mobile as well as, uh, you know, the desktop version of opera. So, you know, they are clearly supportive of this tech as well. Okay. Now the other nice features, I mean, it does have work in force dark mode on pages where instead of like the gleaming white, you know, you get black on everything and that looks good in Google docs and whatever else you're happy to use. Uh, there's sometimes where it doesn't work very well. Uh, but I mean, it, it, it's a nice little feature to have, uh, f- for sure. And also it is pretty handy, particularly when you're running it in a portable implementation to be able to turn on the VPN right in the browser, especially if you're using it on someone else's computer, someone else's network and so on. It's, it's not bad. I mean, so I'm just, I'm really impressed if you're out there looking for that next browser experience, I understand why a lot of people are running to brave. Um, and people were a little disappointed that I did not bring that up when we were recently having a web browser conversation. Um, I mean, it, it go for it if you want it. Okay. I don't think the bat, you know, the basic attention token is the future, but you know, get, it's everywhere. Brave is certainly, you know, solid in what it does. Uh, but opera GX, I mean, just a lot of these nice little touches, especially for getting shit done. If you want to have like a separate work browser, like I do, I I was just, I was very impressed by this little ambient music. (laughs) I I know it's such a little thing, but again, it, it alters with what you're doing on the browser. Um, or like, I, I guess the, the, the tempo of what you're doing. And before anybody says, and look, you're not wrong in doing this. Like, well, they're only able to do that because they're seeing everything that you're doing in your web browser, blah, blah, blah. Well, again, it's based on tempo and look folks, 99% of websites are tracking with JavaScript, what you're typing and what you're in your mouse movements. It is not anything new. Okay. Like, I, I mean, this is not, you know, is it a good thing? Ultimately, I suppose not. Um, but and I, you know, I actually, I used to do this before and I, I can't think of the extension. I, there was a Chrome extension that 
like let you listen to a fireplace and rain and everything. And I used to use that a lot and it's kind of the same concept, but I just, I thought they implemented it really, really well here. Um, so uh, anyway, if you want to check it out, check it out. I, I'm just making you aware of it. And you know, I guess rolling on, I mean, it's just a week of changes. <laughs> it's, there's so many. So while we're still, while we're talking about all these changes, uh, let's keep going. Well, for one, iOS 14 uh, came out finally. Um, I already installed it on my iOS device here. It's just an iPod Touch, folks. <laughs> it's the latest, but it is an iPod Touch. I am. I would not get an iPhone. No. <laughs> All right. Uh, and you know, I mean, what what is there to say? Uh, basically, everything that half of Twitter was already saying about the fact that. Well, iOS 14 basically makes iOS function like Android uh, without the more of the openness. Yeah, that's basically right. We got an app drawer now. There's widgets that can be put on places. And and I, I speaking of on Twitter, I can't believe that. I mean, I get sharing your home screen, you know, like to show off what apps you use. I mean, like there, there's 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 something fun or showing off a wallpaper or whatever. You know, there's something fun to showing off a home screen. I get that. Um but I got to admit, when I saw everybody sharing their home screens for iOS, like, ooh, look at my iOS 14 home screen. I mean, I thought Twitter, suddenly a whole bunch of people that I was pretty sure owned iPhones because they basically live off of them, which no comment. Uh, <laughs> I thought everybody got Android phones suddenly. Like, what, did a new Samsung Galaxy come out and then they finally overtook all the iPhone users? Uh, you know, because it just looked like that. But whatever. I mean, and, and you know, we could talk about the Apple event, but folks... I think the message should be abundantly clear by now. Uh, what did you get? You got a new iPad or a new color. I mean, yes, you got a new iPad, but Ooh, iPads are blue. Now the innovation has long left the room. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like it's, it's long, long gone. You can't tell me that you are somehow salivating and as excited over an Apple event as you were, Hell, even six, seven years ago. Um, any argument, you know, while we're talking about companies becoming new things, I mean, any argument, this has been true for a while, and I know a lot of people realize it, but any argument about all the reasons that you think Apple is so great, outside of perhaps the, the quality of the build of their product. But again, they're not the only ones with that quality anymore. Regardless, any arguments around Apple, in why Apple was so great I, I, as a company and so on. I mean, they, they just, those, those don't hold water anymore. They're, they're just not true. Like the whole, the innovation thing, the courage, right? Yeah. Right. So much courage that, well, even this iPod touch, which came out after the whole courage fiasco, right? Where, where there was, you know, no, no headphone jack came with a headphone jack. And of course, so does every Mac, but come on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just stop, stop, stop fanboying these companies. Okay. That's, that's all, I, I guess if, if there's just anything that I could, I could hope to achieve in even bothering to talk about some of these events, just stop it. You know, I mean, if any of them is actually innovating, any of the tech giants at this stage in the game, it would be Microsoft, right? Cause that surface duo is, well, we, we talked about it. We did a full, you know, we did a, a full discussion around it. Uh, I mean, that is, a, that's a game changer, right? 
And I got to appreciate the fact that, you know, they're not even like bothering worrying about the specs. They're worrying about what can you do with it? It reminds me of the Nintendo attitude, right? Nintendo's out of the specs game, not concerned about the specs game. We're going to talk about Nintendo a bit later because who boy during gaming grid, they're worrying. Okay. Can you have fun? Microsoft, can you get stuff done? It's not about the specs. This whole thing of, I mean, innovation's not even like really the term. It's what lets you achieve what you need in your life, right? This holding up of innovation as somehow being an inherent good or that somehow, you know, higher clock speeds and whatever else is some kind of inherent good. That's got to fall away, folks. Because that that's just not true. And it's having you become basically a servant to the technology instead of the other way around. The technology should be developed to what achieves what you are looking for. Of course, a lot of people, let's be honest, a lot of people don't have intrinsic motivations. They are looking for the world, for companies, for the government, for civilization to tell them what they think they should do or what they should want or need. And that's pity. But there are companies or there there are things out there, I think, and there are people who perhaps are starting to recognize, yeah, we got to get past the clock speeds. We got to get past all this stuff. What can you do with it? That's what matters. Anyway, we might get into that conversation a bit uh, uh, later on. But iOS 14, I don't know, my my world didn't suddenly change. And look, I, I use my iPod Touch quite a bit. It's it's kind of my uh, it's my little entertainment consumption device. Uh, you know, it's what I listen to audiobooks on podcasts, a lot of other things. Okay. Um, and I mean, I talked about this when I did a review of it, uh, in recent episodes, but again, my, my world did just, it just didn't change. And I don't believe that if it's an iPhone, somehow your world changed. I don't believe it, you know, open shit up, uh, allow for background processes, stuff like that. Then you'll get me excited about an, a new iOS release. But this this did absolutely, in my opinion, this did nothing, uh, nothing exciting anyway, and nothing that I couldn't do on my you know devices that I rely on and use more, which you know are often Android based. So uh, behind the times, Apple, way to go. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Actually, quickly. Yeah. Uh, again, we're, we're, we're sticking with the changes. Okay. <laughs> changes perhaps not expected. Um, it had been recently, and I, I brought this up in previous episodes. Uh, there have been a, a conversation that's been happening uh, in the sovereign tech telegram group is what is a great, uh, messaging service that allows for video calling, audio calling groups, and a lot of this, you know, all, all these other features, but that is open source encrypted privacy, you know, respecting and, and, and so on. Um, a lot of people are, are running away from signal right now, uh, because of some of, you know, the ways that they are changing and new features that they are putting in. And I understand that. Uh, and I, I have stated the same. Okay. Uh, well, there might be a contender that's actually been around for a good long while, which I think is important in choosing something. Um, there might be a contender coming down and that is a uh, Threema, which I have talked about in the past and have been positive towards other than the fact it's not open source. Now it had been, uh, by an, an independent auditor, the code had been verified. Okay. And audited. 
but it was never, you know, fully open source. Well, now Threema has actually partnered with another company and they are going to make the, the Threema client fully open source. Also, they are going to make desktop clients for it. Um, and because right now it works kind of like WhatsApp web where you have a web page you have to sign up to and, you know, it does a little QR code handshake and then, um, you know, but it, but it runs ultimately through your phone, through the app. Okay. But it, now it'll be an independent uh, desktop client that they're going to be coming out with. Uh, these are all great things, but the real winner with Threema and, and again, the, I think when the code gets hammered out and, you know, we'll reserve judgment for right now, it's probably going to end up being pretty good. Otherwise, I mean, that independent audit's going to be that, you know, like my grandma used to say, their face is going to be mud. But um, clearly the reason behind this is that Zoom has become order of the day. Yet Zoom has a million security issues, many of which have yet to be really resolved. It's all been patchwork resolutions. There are all kinds of problems with Zoom. And I think people want a Zoom replacement that has real encryption, that is serious, solid, and has some uh, pedigree in history, which Threema has. Um, and once they open source the code, uh, I mean, also there needs to be, a, you know, kind of a resolution for Keybase, among other things. I mean, and that's a nice feature about Threema. I got to give it that. It's very, very, uh, well, I mean, it's complex in comparison perhaps to to other, you know, messaging standards, but it's easy relatively to control your keys with, with Threema. And I think that's a winner as far as that goes. The, the other big winner here is that with Threema, you don't have to have a phone number. And that is one of the major things levied against Signal, even, even when people trusted Signal more and weren't concerned about directions they were going. Everybody always brought up, why do I have to have a phone number with Signal? I don't want any identifying information and so on. And I always, I always gave that caveat and I always understood it, you know, and I understand why they use a phone number because it's easy verification, but Threema just out of the gate does not require you to have a phone number. That is a very big deal. And especially it's going to have, you know, that it, and, cause this is something else. So Threema never had a great solution for being cross device. Not that I necessarily have a problem with that, but they are going to make cross device um, accounts viable. They're going to make that happen. Meaning that in the past, you know, if you had an iOS device and an Android device, or if you had multiple of either operating system, a device in that, in that class, you, you had to have a separate Threema instance on each one. Now Threema does cost money. It's two 99. I don't have a problem with that either. Okay. <laughs> like, because if you're going to do messaging, right, it's worth three fucking dollars. You understand? Anyway, you would have to have a separate instance in, in, in each one that you could create a group. So that way you could share information across, but you'd have to have separate accounts all over the place. And that would be admittedly a, a pain in the ass. Uh, so these are exciting changes coming down the line for Threema. You're welcome to try it out now. If you want, if you want to wait for it to go open source, if you want to wait for the code to get independent or, you know, yeah, independently audited by the monkeys. Right. And just, you know, for, for independent people to make sure that it, that it looks good. Not just that company that they hired, you know, some years ago to take a look at their code, uh, do so that's fine. But I am cautiously optimistic about this. And I think it might be the real, uh, I hate to even say this kind of thing, but we'll say it, uh, it might be the signal killer. You know, it might be the thing that actually overtakes signal, uh, and, and with good reason. 
So, and, and again, actually answers one of the major concerns around signal that being the need for a phone number. Uh, so something to keep an eye on. Anyway, I had other stuff lined up in the foreplay, but we've gotten to so many conversations. We got to get into our main story. We got to get into so many stories. So we'll end the foreplay right here and I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside, and not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The main story. It is time for the main story. And this main story comes out of a funny scenario. So this got shared um, in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group uh, by my man, Rob. And and all who's also my co-host on TIE Fighter Renegades. Boy, I hope you listened to the latest episode. That was a lot of fun, <laughs> even though it's, it might have came off as like depressing, like everything sucks. Uh, no, it was it was always a lot of fun. I mean, we, we just have the best time doing that show. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's it's a great I don't even want to call it a bonus because I know a lot of people really look forward to that on on the Sovereign Tech feed. Um, it's just it's a nice it's it, it's a wonderful extra and something that I plan on. We plan on doing forever. Um, you know, alongside with Sovereign Tech on the feed. Um, of course, I do lots of little specials and other things as well that have come out um, as late with many more to come. And I appreciate when, uh, you know, I mean, the feedback that I get on those as well, including one where I had a rather large and it was it was from 2016, but I realized it never got put into the Sovereign Tech feed and I released it with uh, with a custom intro, uh, a conversation that was it was basically all philosophy. And. I generally, well, I don't steer clear of philosophy on this show by no means, but I don't make it the central focus necessarily. Okay. We have a lot of tech and science to talk about. Granted, we come at it from certain philosophical bents. Uh, but the reaction I got from that was wildly positive and basically people saying, Hey stallion, no, you go right ahead and you give us like four hour, you know, episodes just covering philosophy, anarchism, and a bunch of other stuff. I'm not going to, I'm not saying that I'm going to do it, but I'm honored that anybody would even want to listen to me talk about that sort of stuff. I just put it out there, you know, basically, uh, I don't want to say for fun, but it's just something that wasn't in the feed. And I like the feed to be as complete as possible. So you have all the content. Uh, anyway, it's surprising. So <laughs> we'll just put it that way. But all of that has come out in the past week. Uh, you can go check that out. But let's get into, so again, this came, it was interesting how this happened. Uh, so about, 
two hours, I want to say, before Rob shared this story in the Telegram group. I was saying something to Ellen. Uh, I think we were having lunch. And I said, you know, it's like this, this thought occurred to me that what if, <laughs> you know, Amazon has become so dominant, all right, in, in as far as retail. What if nobody knew that Amazon was actually not, you know, I mean, and it, look, Amazon became dominant in retail because they were undercutting the prices of everybody else on the planet. Okay. And, and we know this, I mean, this isn't speculation. This is out of, you know, investor meetings and everything where, where Bezos effectively said as much now years ago. And I've said this as we've covered Amazon over the years, right? Hashtag Amazon world domination tour, uh, that eventually he'll undercut everybody and he will survive not, you know, Amazon will survive not making a profit, but then once they've wiped out a lot of the competition, then they'll start, you know, spiking their prices, right? And at points we've seen where this has occurred at points where in certain, uh, you know, certain market sectors that has occurred for, for Amazon. And we've covered those. Uh, but the point that I got to, you know, that I was saying to Ellen is like, what if there are websites out there that actually sell things wildly cheaper than Amazon? And because, you know, we're always just sort of trusting Amazon's prices, especially like, oh, the suggested retail is X and we sell it for Y, you know? Because people just kind of take that as fact and just sort of accept that Amazon is Amazon and, oh, yeah, it's the cheapest place to go on the Internet. But what if there were actually significantly cheaper places on the Internet, but nobody bothered to find out or look because, you know, they're just so used to using Amazon. It's just the network effect, right? They're so used to using Amazon that they don't question the prices on Amazon and they don't question whether or not there's a better deal somewhere else. Now, I mean, you have Walmart and Best Buy and you've had other competitors, of course, try and do their thing. And at times they will undercut Amazon. And there's also the fact that you already have an Amazon account. It's easy to, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of factors of ease that Amazon provides why people will go there anyway, even if you know Best Buy and Walmart have a better deal. But again, the idea that Amazon might not be giving you, I mean, because it's one thing where, okay, Walmart might, you might say five bucks right? Or on Best Buy, you might say five bucks in comparison to Amazon. But what if there are places that are $20 cheaper, $30 cheaper, something like that? We, most people would never know because they don't even bother to try and look. I think for, I mean, one example you could actually look at would be something like Newegg, right? Which try has tried and is kind of still trying to be an Amazon competitor. Um, you know, with, with varying degrees of, of, of success. Okay. And in fact, I, I love new egg. I'm not knocking you just, you know, let's talk by the numbers percentage wise. It's not a success. Uh, it's not a success in comparison to Amazon new egg itself rolls along and, you know, I have no problem recommend use recommending using it. Um, but this is, this is an interesting point that I think, I think people would do well to pay attention to. I mean, also now it's, I think a lot of brick and mortar stores can really flip the script as it were and offer prices far better than what Amazon really offers. Now, the reason Amazon ultimately, and this will speak to the story we're about to get into the reason Amazon can get away with so much and people will still buy for them ultimately comes down to the return policy that it is more or less. It's not entirely. And I know there are horror stories out there, but more or less 
Amazon has a no questions asked return policy. Okay. In fact, sometimes they will credit you the money back the instant that, you know, UPS or whoever scans that the returns on its way, it doesn't even have to get to Amazon to get verified yet. That's really why Amazon has been able to do what it does. And you got to understand that Amazon was not a profitable company for the bulk of its history. It is only in the most recent of years that it is finally reported profitable quarters, but that's because the investors and all the bond sales there too, and everything else believed in what Bezos was saying is that we undercut the competition long enough. And then basically people will just by default shop with us. And you know, then we can start hiking up the prices. Now you could say, well, Amazon's not doing that. Blah, blah, blah. Aha. This is a story from uh, Ars Technica by Kate Cox. This is from uh, 9-11, 2020. Price gouging and defective products rampant on Amazon reports find. Now, before you say anything, because I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, well, yeah, that's because there's the Amazon marketplace and there's third-party sellers and, you, and Amazon can't really control them very well. And they're probably price gouging. In fact, price gouging is an okay thing, blah, 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 blah. Without getting into the economic conversation around price gouging, there's a bigger picture here to, to consider, okay? But you got to understand, as this article is going to lay out, it's not just these third-party sellers that were engaging in price gouging. Again, there's, there's a big conversation to have here, and I want to have it. Let's start reading the story. New reports released this week serve as a cautionary tale for consumers who shop at Amazon, by far the largest online retailer in the U.S. While complaints about Amazon's third-party vendor marketplace are by now commonplace, the new reports find that only that not only did Amazon itself price gouge customers during the height of the pandemic, but also that many of its white label Amazon branded products are just as likely to be dangerously defective as third party goods. Product shortages, both for pandemic related supplies, such as masks and sanitizer, and also for basic household goods, such as toilet paper. Uh, wait, actually. Okay. <laughs> there was no shortage of toilet paper, but whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going with the narrative here. We can call bullshit on all sides. That's what sovereign tech does. Uh, anyway, anyway we'll, let's keep rolling. Uh, hit nationwide in February, March, and April as the country shut down and everyone uh, who could hold, who could, who could hold up at home uh, as tends to happen when demand skyrockets, but supply doesn't prices on a wide range of items went up and up and then up some more. By March, regulators were desperately trying to stem the tide of price gouging, flooding online retailers, especially Amazon's sprawling third-party marketplace. Amazon at the time said in a corporate blog post that it was, quote, working hard to protect customers from bad actors, end quote, in its marketplace. Quote, we have suspended more than 3,900 selling accounts in our U.S. store alone for violating our fair pricing policies. Amazon wrote on March 23rd, quote, and we've been partnering directly with law enforcement agencies to combat price gougers and hold them accountable, end quote. Okay, so what you have to understand here, first off, regardless if you think price gouging is really just, you know, an economic factor of price discovery, it's benign to some people, whatever, or, you know, or if you think that it's, you know, the grand evil of capitalism, whatever your perspective is around price gouging, that is Ultimately, while that has effect, that is ultimately not the concern here, okay, that I want to bring up to you. So Amazon has fair pricing policies. These are not policies that they just happened to enact in March of 2020. These are policies that have been a part of the company almost since its inception. 
at the very least since they went beyond just selling books. And part of the attraction, well, while, like I said, I think the main driving factor for sales on Amazon is the no questions asked largely return policy. Another aspect is, is that it doesn't fall prey to regional economic factors. And so, you know, you can get things still cheap when your local store down the street, uh, you know, might be, you know, racking up the prices, right? And Amazon knows this and they largely with their fair pricing policies and so on pay fealty to this notion. Again, that you are going to get the best price on Amazon and Amazon is not going to fuck you. Got it. Let's read on. Not just third parties. It's the subheader. A new report from consumer watchdog group, public citizen, however, finds that price gouging for some critical, critical goods, uh, was just as prevalent in Amazon's own first party sales as it was in its vendor marketplace. Between May and August, for example, Public Citizen found that ordinary antibacterial hand soap, which usually sells for around $1.50, was going for $7, a 470% price increase. Public Citizen's report included two instances of markups of 1,000% or more, disposable face masks, which were selling for $40 instead of $4, and cornstarch, which sold for $9 instead of $0.90. Quote, it is troubling that so much effort was put into blaming third-party sellers, but so little effort was made to stop the price increases, including on the products sold by Amazon directly, end quote. The report concludes, quote, Amazon is not merely a victim in the price gouging on its marketplace, it is a perpetrator, end quote. The report confirms previous findings from consumer advocacy group USPIRG looking into coronavirus-related price gouging on Amazon, including on first-party listings. A follow-up report uh, from USPIRG published this week found that, quote, erratic pricing, end quote, for staple items such as paper towels, facial tissues, flour, and bleach still persists on Amazon today. Quote, we attempt to identify excessively high prices through manual and automated processes designed to detect prices that are significantly above historical pricing for the same product, taking into account reasonable cost increases experienced by sellers, end quote. Uh, Amazon spokesperson Nicole Jefferson told USPRG, PIRG about the price spikes. It is extremely unlikely that anyone at Amazon took the time to manually go through its listings to, to elevate specific prices by a certain amount. The company infamously relies on dynamic algorithmic prices that changes constantly in response to a whole slew of conditions. An April report by the markup found that coronavirus related conditions were causing some particularly noticeable price, price volatility that Amazon did not seem to cap. So here's the interesting thing. And this is true for a lot of platforms. I mean, we've talked about this with Facebook, among others, is that sometimes these, and this is basically a, a you know, a commerce platform, Amazon in and of itself, right? Uh, some of these things become, and, and when it all gets operated automatically, you know, via algorithm, they become a beast that cannot be tamed. Meaning that the prices of Amazon's own products are based around a bunch of factors. And I mean, they are not paid attention to by say Amazon brass itself. And yes, there's so much out there, especially like the Amazon basics line and so on. And we've got more to get into with that, that, you know, how can you keep track of it? But that's kind of my point is that because the pricing on Amazon ultimately falls down, you know, falls to certain algorithms and we don't even know what all those factors are, but it is very possible 
In fact, it's not even just possible, it's highly likely that platforms trying to compete, say with Amazon, or at least maybe compete in certain market sectors, maybe not have the, you know, be the everything store like Amazon is, right? Could offer significantly lower prices because Amazon's not even paying that much attention anymore anyway to where they are making sure that, you know, you're getting the, the lowest price and that they're necessarily undercutting everybody else. Now, again, in certain, in certain sectors on, on Amazon, I think that's kind of still going on like with Kindle and others. Um, but, but overall, Amazon might actually be far from the, the best choice uh, for a bunch of reasons, not just lowest price, but for a bunch of reasons, there could be that Amazon is far again from the best choice for the consumer to go shopping online or even in comparison to brick and mortar. Now there's, there's more I want to get into here, but it's, it's really, really key to grasp what's actually going on here is that Amazon came right out again. And this is not a new policy came right out and says, you know, we have fair pricing policies. We do not engage. And that's them basically saying we do not engage in price gouging and them look, they didn't just take down. Okay. Third-party sellers that they claimed were engaging in price gouging. They called the cops. They got the guns involved. You understand? But then they were doing it themselves. Now you can say, well, it wasn't really Amazon. It was just their algorithms. Well then turn off the fucking algorithms already. You know, if there's a pandemic going on and you actually pretend to give a shit, maybe give a shit. They lied straight up. Does everybody lie? Sure. Whatever. Everybody lies. Does that make it okay? No. <laughs> and certainly not in this instance, especially when what makes it 10 times worse. I mean, this is pot kettle black stuff. You understand, especially when you're calling the guns on the other sellers, when you're doing it yourself, could I mean, does someone want to go arrest Jeff Bezos? I imagine he's the one that has the ultimate say on whether or not these algorithms engage in price gouging. I guess that's not going to happen, even though they're violating. I mean, how about the investors? Investors, would you like to call the cops on the CEO of the company? He broke his own rules. But this is just the tip of the iceberg with Amazon. We can move on from that. Okay. Again, I don't care what your thoughts on are on price gouging. Amazon ultimately lied and not only lied again, went after other businesses or entrepreneurs, however you want to call it, you know, third-party sellers. Okay. And it, do third-party sellers scam? Yeah. We're about to get into that. Okay. But so does Amazon. Again, Amazon claims third-party sellers did X, Y, Z bad against the consumer, took action against them, legal action, brought down the gun. But then Amazon also engaged in all of XYZ against the consumer and did nothing against itself. Now, let's read on, shall we? Explosive issues. It's the next subheader. 
Multiple deep diving investigations in recent years have found unsafe, mislabeled, counterfeit, or fraudulent goods for sale in Amazon's third-party marketplace, which is increasingly compared to an unsupervised flea market. Stanley breaking in. Hey, I like flea markets, but anyway, let's move on. The Wall Street Journal in 2019 found that not only is some of the junk for sale in the marketplace trash in a very literal sense, but also that listings are unsafe are for unsafe items persist even after those goods are recalled or banned from the site. About 60% of Amazon's retail uh, sales take place through the third party marketplace with millions of vendors placing tens of millions of listings. Uh, at that scale, it can undoubtedly be difficult to keep up and perhaps some errors are expected. Stallion breaking in. Yeah, of course I can't, you know, especially when, when a, a marketplace gets that big, you can't help it. Right. Going on. Amazon's own sales, however, the other 40% of its retail empire, increasingly rely and promote Amazon's hundreds of private label brands. Amazon Basics is one of the most successful of those brands. Stallion breaking in. Also, Amazon, I mean, Amazon Basics, you get it. Amazon's in the name. That's true for a couple other of, uh, of private label companies or, you know, private labels that, that Amazon owns. Many Many of the private labels that Amazon promotes, you know, that it is actually their product that they promote on the site. Okay. And ironically, they're even undercutting the third party sellers. <laughs> like they're, they're going after themselves or, you know, uh, they're, they're going after other companies internally. Right. <laughs> but regardless, uh, but a lot of these private labels from Amazon, they don't want you to know it's Amazon. Now, why wouldn't they want you to know that it's Amazon? That. I don't, that, that kind of feels like a bit of a dirty tactic. Don't you think? I'm not saying people don't do it. I'm not saying that it isn't an, an interesting business strategy. I've brought up over the years on this show many times, Sony and Iowa, right? Anyway, I don't need to recover that story, but why wouldn't they want you to know that it's Amazon? Is there the, somehow the inference that it's cheap, low quality, something like that? Interesting. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Amazon Basics is one of the most successful of those brands. It sells the kind of product lines you'd expect to find store brands of in a Target, Walmart, or other big box uh, store. Home goods, bed and bath products, kitchen accessories, luggage, light bulbs, charging cables, and so on. You might think that bringing all of those products and brands in-house and listing, selling, and shipping them as a first-party merchant would allow Amazon to exercise much tighter quality control over those goods than it does in the marketplace. According to a new CNN report, however, you'd be wrong. CNN identified more than 1,500 consumer reviews of Amazon products that describe products overheating, burning someone or something, or outright catching fire. About 30 items with, quote, three or more, end quote, reviews uh, describing how a product caught fire were still available for sale at the time CNN published its story. Another dozen vanished while CNN's story was in progress. Quote, some became unavailable after CNN began its reporting, and at least four product pages were removed from the retailer's site entirely, leaving behind dead URLs known by employees as dog pages, end quote CNN wrote. And Amazon Basics Microwave, for example, featured more than 150 user reviews describing, quote, safety concerns, including flames and smoke, end quote. Several included pictures of the singed products. CNN obtained one of the faulty microwaves from a customer and submitted it to experts at the University of Maryland for testing. And, uh, quote, as soon as the researchers turned it on, the microwave began sparking and smoking, causing it to react as if its users put foil or other metal inside, end quote, CNN wrote. A user uploaded video included the CNN story shows uh, one of the microwaves sparking dangerously when a plastic bowl of macaroni and cheese is placed inside and heated. Cheese and rice. I think I said that wrong, but anyway. 
Amazon told CNN that relying on user reviews to uncover faulty products is insufficient, saying that it also looks at sales history and customer service contacts when looking for a problem. Quote, using customer reviews alone to conclude a product is unsafe or imply there's a widespread issue is misleading, end quote, which is ironic. Amazon saying that that's coming from an Amazon rep because their uh, rating system, the review system is ultimately what Amazon tells you, the customer, it's ultimately what tells you whether or not, you know, you should feel okay buying something and whether or not something is a scam, even though people scam that all the time, right? Like they'll relist a different item under something that got reviewed, I don't know, a thousand times and they were all positive, but the, you know, that third party seller stopped selling the item and basically they just wanted to get a quick, uh, you know, make it look like they were putting out a good product, even though really it's just a relisting of an old one with something new in place. So no, you can't run off of that. And I, that's not anything new for sovereign tech. I said this almost 10 years ago that, you know, this whole star system that eBay and Amazon and a bunch of them use and even, even more crypto solutions have used, you know, basically a rating system of sorts, a star system. I mean, it is, it, this is kindergarten stuff. You understand literally, Hey teacher, can I get a gold star for doing well on my report? And this is, you know, this doesn't even get into the issue (laughs) of, you know, fake reviews and whatever, and bought reviews and whatever else, even though, you know, there've been actions to take against that. But basically, you know, the five gold stars should mean about as much as, as it meant, you know, on, on a kindergartner's little paper or a little, little bit of artistry as cute as it is and as, as wonderful to see children being creative. Right. But that's about how much it should mean. Amazon is running off of a reputation that it was not able to, that that is not profitably sustainable, meaning that they made, you know, they got everybody hooked onto Amazon because they were offering at the time quality products or, you know, however that took shape. Okay. At, Prices that were, yes, much lower than anywhere else, be it in brick and mortar or even online. They undercut everybody, okay, with the same quality products that were available elsewhere. They did this and they ran this way at a loss for over a decade, okay? And then, you know, once once they had everybody, once that reputation was built, they just turned the kingdom upside down. And that quality... That guaranteed quality is gone. Those lowest prices on the internet, gone. And we have all of the evidence to prove that now. Okay. And the advantage of, well, this doesn't fall prey to, you know, regional uh, uh, price hikes and other things, no longer true. The only thing, and even this, I think Amazon is eventually going to start pushing back against. The only thing, the only thing that keeps, in my opinion, that keeps Amazon afloat and that keeps Amazon, why people still kind of trust it, quote unquote, is because of that, again, no questions asked return policy. But sooner or later, they are, and 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 they know that that's, they're losing a ton of money on that, right? That's why they offer, what is it, like the seven day prime where you can order like a bunch of things and you can send back what you don't actually want to wear. Um you know, and also, I mean, them creating their own, uh, basically their own UPS, right? Their own delivery service with Amazon Logistics. That's totally about 
making sure that the, that's why they take the picture of the product when it's at your doorstep, letting you know, Hey, no, Amazon delivered it. We didn't fuck up. Don't complain at us, you know, and, and so on. It is all about controlling that whole process, making sure that at some point Amazon gets to say to a customer that no customer, you are wrong and we won't accept your return. And I mean, that, that kind of thing already happens, but they need the percentage of being able to confidently say that they need that to go up significantly. And that's what a lot of this stuff is about, but take that away, take away that return policy. And I think, you know, the trust in Amazon very much falls apart. The appeal of Amazon very much falls apart, but you've got to let people know right? We have to, and that's why I'm talking about it here. Okay. Is to inform you. No, the best prices are absolutely not on Amazon. And in fact, it's not the only real everything store. Um, you know, it is not only that, but Amazon is, I mean, and, and I've been favorable cause I've bought Amazon basic stuff, you know, basically to test it out. It's like, cause it is unbelievable. Sometimes those prices are so low and it's like, you know, maybe a really quality, I don't know, charging cord or something like that. I think there's a lot of very simple things that it's very easy to mass produce and make them quality or fairly of fairly high quality, you know, like charging cables and HDMI cables and, you know, maybe some other things. I think you can kind of get away with that because you buy them in such a bulk that it can still be profitable for Amazon to do. And because Amazon, you know, has the coffers of cash to be able to buy in that amount of that kind of bulk. But there are a lot of products, the more complex, the products that is, that is abs- There's no guarantee whatsoever of that. Um, I mean, I've even bought Amazon basics clothing. I mean, I've bought all this stuff and I mean, it, it's again, they're trying to, their, their selling point is that this is high quality stuff at incredibly low prices. The low prices is sometimes true, not always. And the quality is more or less almost never true. And this goes, I mean, from, from, uh, snow scrapers to headphones to, I mean, I could think of all kinds of things. Um, even eventually, like I had an Amazon basics microphone that I recorded this very show on, uh, throughout 2019. And eventually, I mean, like it was good at first, but then, you know, like the quality starts to, you start to realize over a period of time, you start to, you start to see the cracks and where the corners cut start to create problems in very, very short order. So you're not getting the lowest prices. You're not getting guaranteed quality. You're getting guaranteed returns, but even that, I mean, can run into, into massive issues. Okay. In fact, I think most people have better luck with the return policy, just with the third party sellers than they do with Amazon themselves. And we could get into, I mean, there, there's a bigger conversation that could be had around the fact that, and this is something I've been realizing recently, there's really no great eBay competitor out there. Amazon is kind of the only eBay competitor. I mean, you could, you could turn that around and say it the other way, I suppose. But at the same time, like eBay's policies are in comparison, even to Amazon are fucking draconian. <laughs> I mean, they like eBay, that is, that's some nasty fucking business, uh, without question. I mean, like the, the way reputation and so many other things work on eBay, um, that that's ugly. And that's probably another reason why Amazon is doing so well is because it has become ultimately the eBay competitor, uh, you know, not with auctions, but I mean, auctions and buy it now, you know, buy it now kind of took over auctions on eBay years ago anyway, but basically 
what I'd like to see come out of this are is, is competition marketplaces, you know, cropping up because now's your time. You have data to suggest. And I would be, frankly, I'd be brutal if I was a, a competing, if I, like if I was Newegg and I'm not Newegg and I'm not speaking for Newegg. Okay. I don't represent Newegg in any way, but if I were like Newegg, I would be plastering it on my front page. I would be buying a uh, 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 press time. Okay. Saying CNN said this about Amazon. I mean, I would try and smear that name so fucking hard because it's not just like, Oh, we want to be more successful than Amazon. You don't even have to come in from, from that attitude. I mean, it's fine if you do, if you know, if, if, if that's what you want to be, but you know, I don't necessarily like getting into those kind of like muckraking, you know, mud. Yeah. Was that muckraking or mudraking, whatever. Anyway, I don't like getting into those kind of muckraking, you know, market practices. All right. You know, let your competition stand on its own terms. You don't have to compare yourselves to others, but now it's to the point where you have company, a company out there that is like the biggest thing out there. And it's straight up lying to consumers. And I, if I were a business, I would have no problem in highlighting the fact that, you know, there, there, there is a massive company out there that you think you should trust that they're not. And that I would use my dollars and cents to let the world know, just like I'm letting you know right now. You know, we're, we're talking about a lot of this episode's talking about changes, changes happening. It is absolutely the time for a competitor to come up against Amazon unseat that fucker. Okay. Because again, other than that return policy, it has no appreciable advantage to the consumer any longer. And it's time for it to go. And also, like, just side note, we need that competitor for eBay, even if it is more in an auction style. I mean, we need a real fucking competitor. Um, I am amazed that no one's, you know, stepping up to the plate. And that actually bothers me because that feels very corporatist. But regardless, it is time. Let's make it happen. I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Tired of school? Who was Joan of Arc? Noah's wife? Like to travel? Let's go back into history. Let's reach out and touch someone. Want to meet people in the past? Put them in the Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden? Excellent! Execute them. Bogus! Then hitch a ride with George Carlin, Keanu Reeves, and Alex Winter in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from Orion Pictures. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's HackSec. It is time for HackSec, and we're going to get into a subject that, frankly, um, I've been meaning to get to for literally months. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm finally going to be able to get it in. I think we've got a spot where we can squeeze it in. And it really speaks to the overall theme of this episode. That's already taken shape. That being change. Um, what has changed here is in my opinion, pretty dramatic. And much like when we were talking about Threema earlier, worth taking a, a second look at, even though it's something that's been around for many years. Uh, 
and worth considering, especially if you're looking for that group chat, video chat, uh, or group call option that comes along with encryption and is available cross-platform. And what we're talking about is what was previously known as Riot.im. Now, Riot.im, some months back, ran into, well, they had a, a server issue with the matrix servers and everything that ended up getting resolved. Um, it was a pretty serious concern at the time. We talked about it when it occurred, uh, but they are really shifting things up. And I think that they are going in the ultimate direction that this, I mean, for, for, if you don't know, riot.im does everything that I just described, right? It's in many ways, it kind of looks like Slack. I would argue it's really the successor to IRC, not that IRC needs a successor because IRC still works fucking great, right? It's one of the original protocols of the internet. Um, I, I like Riot a lot. I've used it. I've had to use it for varying reasons uh, back, shall we say, back in the day, which <laughs> it's hard to believe it was back in the day. Back in the day, it was a very, very popular option in the crypto space. Uh, when it first started out, partly because it did allow for video chat. Um, I mean, and look, I, I I know there's other, you know, Jitsi, I know there's other options and a lot of other things out there. Um, I certainly know a lot of people seem to have flocked to Discord for whatever reason. Um, and those are things to consider as well. But, well, I, I don't think Discord is necessarily not when you're looking for real encryption and a more trustless option. I don't think that's the way to go. But... What Riot.im announced back in June of this year, June 2020, which is amazing that they announced that. That was before the protests started. Yes, the pandemic was in, quote unquote, still, I think for a lot of people, what they would consider full swing. Um, But for them to make such a major announcement, I mean, it was nice to get some good news within all of that. Now, this has what, what we're about to talk about. Uh, has somewhat come to fruition. And so we're going to be able to update on that a bit as we talk about this. But basically on June 2nd, 2020, um, they put at Matrix, which of course, you know, Riot.im is what accesses the Matrix servers. Anyway, they they came out with, uh, Matrix.org came out with a statement of where they plan on all of this going. Now, it's important to know in July, that Riot changed its name. Like I said, it's previously known as Riot.im. It is now known as Element, uh, and Element.io is the is the website. But that's what they've changed to, and I didn't even basically I didn't get the memo. I just noticed on my on my Android phone that it updated, and, and I'm like, what the fuck is Element? <laughs> you know, when did I install that? Which for me. I don't, I don't know. I mean, doing major rebrands. Yeah, that's a thing. I mean, I, you know, I even did somewhat of a quasi rebrand of the podcast. I mean, it's been sovereign tech forever. Um, but you know, I tried to, you know, we, we, we dalliance with the idea of doing a network here and everything. And so that kind of rebranded the feed to Zomia one for eh, a little over a year. Um, but I, I think rebranding is boy, it's a risk. I mean, it's a real, real risk to do. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, it's a little bit of both. Most people that I know haven't really heard of Riot anyway. 
So, and also, I mean, again, it's almost, it's almost odd, you know, that, that, uh, well, I, it's not odd. The the peer to peer, the fact that they were making this, and and that's what we're going to talk about is that matrix slash element is switching over to a, a peer to peer infrastructure, which is the right move. I want to talk about it. I want to read a little bit about it. I mean, admittedly, a, I don't think riot.im was the best name in the world to, to run with, uh, though, you know, I, I mean, when I, I've brought that up to people before and they would basically respond, it's like, well, isn't Slack like the worst thing to name, uh, such a crucial, uh, uh, piece of software for a lot of work environments, you know, slacking, working, right. Like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, I, I agree that that doesn't make any sense, but of course that didn't stop Slack from becoming wildly popular, uh, much to my chagrin. So I never really agreed with the name riot.im anyway. So I guess it's the right move to do. I don't think it's that surprising that come July of this year, that riot was like, well, you know, considering everything happening in the press, maybe we should dump the name riot. And okay. So they did. So they went with element. That is, that is the new name for it. Like I said, the website is at element.io. Now I want to talk about them moving to peer to peer. And this is, you know, earlier we were talking about Threema, um, talk about concerns around Signal and a lot of other things. And look, Signal, one of my concerns years ago, I mean, now everybody's like, oh, I don't like the pin system. I don't like this. I mean, I was raising red flags about Signal two, three years ago when the interview came out from Moxie Marlin Spike, who I like, but who was basically saying, it's like, yeah, I want to get away from the federated model. And I thought that was a mistake. You know, and no one's really, I mean, there was talk of, you know, when Telegram was doing the gram, when they were, you know, working on their blockchain project, which has basically come to an end. Of course, we talked about that earlier this year. Um, they, you know, no one's really gone for the peer-to-peer chat app when the technology is there. I mean, there's Briar, which can be peer-to-peer right on Android. And that's an exciting prospect, but it's also not cross-platform now peer-to-peer and being cross-platform at the same time, that's that's going to be a game changer. And I think, I mean, like I said earlier, when we were talking about Threema, people are looking for better options to Zoom, better as far as encryption, better as far as the code base, better as, you know, for a lot of reasons. If you can have solid encryption and go peer-to-peer, I mean, you're going to one-up Threema for one on that, Uh, For two, I think that you're going to get a lot of companies, you know, really excited about this, Uh, especially when it comes to internal teams or, you know, I mean, granted, a lot of teams are remote now, even there. I I just think this this offers a lot of promise. Okay, let's read a little bit about what they had to say. Um, Here we go. Oh, that's the rebrand. We don't want to talk about that. Uh, TLDR. They got so introducing peer to peer matrix. TLDR. So here's the too long. Didn't read. We shipped a major update. uh, That was version one, 0.1.1. Hi folks. As many know by now, uh, I few, a few of us have been working away since mid December on experimenting with running matrix in a peer to peer architecture. One where every user has absolute total autonomy and ownership of their conversations because the only place their conversations exist is on the devices they own. Perfect language. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, 
all of the dangers there too come along with that, right? You own the conversation. It's on your device. You're responsible for it. You know, don't think you're going to get a backup by signing into some server somewhere. But then that also means that someone else, some third party, authoritarian or otherwise, isn't going to have access to a backup either. This is advantageous, uh, in my opinion, certainly in a more, you know, activist or privacy centric role reading on, um, in some ways, this is the logical end goal of matrix. Our aim has always been to empower users to have full control over their communication rather than being beholden to any given service provider. And in a peer to peer world, we completely return power over secure communication to the people. Beautiful. Here's a subheader. Why peer-to-peer? Peer-to-peer matrix is about more than just letting users store their own conversations. It can also avoid dependencies on the internet itself by working over local networks, mesh networks, or situations where the internet has been cut off. Even more interestingly, without home servers, there is nowhere for metadata to accumulate about who is talking to who and when, which is a legitimate complaint about today's matrix network. Given the home servers of all users in a given conversation necessarily have to store that conversation's metadata or if you use matrix servers themselves. Uh, Peer-to-peer also lets us radically simplify sign up for new users if they don't have to pick a server to get going. And we avoid the unintentional centralization of users piling onto public servers like Matrix's own, where, where you know, there was an issue that I was run into in the past year. Um, just stallion commenting on that. So uh, bingo. And, and I love the fact, credit where credit's due, for them to admit, like, we know that this is a criticism. I don't know that I've ever really heard, for example, Signal come out and say, yeah, the phone number thing is a real problem. Like they just don't want to admit to it, you know? And, and, and again, I get with signal, I've said this over and over again, and I've defended it in the apps use that phone numbers is an easy way to verify, you know, for two, for two party verification. It's, it's just, it's dead simple. Okay. And, and I get why they want to use that. Right. But you know, to get beyond that and you, you sure as fuck don't need a phone number, you know, much like we talked about with Threema earlier to end up using, you know, to, to use uh, element. Now, again, I know I keep, I still want to call it riot, but element, um, which that's a nice move as well. So it gets them out of that mess. I want to read a little bit more, but I mean, but they get it. They're getting the attitude that, Hey, we don't want centralized servers. You need to be able to communicate even when the internet has been cut off. Dynamite. Great answer. Reading on, peer-to-peer also forces us to solve many of the hardest remaining problems in Matrix. Uh, Multi-homed accounts, given uh, multi-device peer-to-peer requires your account to exist in multiple places. This, in turn, unlocks high availability and geo-redundancy for accounts on today's Matrix network. Imagine having a primary and backup home server that magically did the right thing, as well as account portability and thus also vhosting and load-balancing accounts between servers, and even improved GDPR uh, uh, compliance for if your user IDs are ephemeral, they are no longer personally identifying information baked into your matrix rooms. We'll also need better. Uh, we need better safety mechanisms to avoid folks exploiting the anonymous nature of the network for abuse, accelerating, uh, the work we're already doing for today's matrix network. The way we've been approaching peer to peer is the ham fisted, but genius approach of taking home servers and running them on the client alongside or within your matrix client, meaning that there are literally no changes required for any matrix client to talk uh, peer to peer. And so peer to peer matrix 
can instantly benefit from all the work which has gone into Riot and other apps. As a result, peer-to-peer is also a huge motivator towards developing much smaller home servers which can run efficiently client-side, which is, of course, great news for Matrix as a whole. Um, So I want to skip ahead a bit here. Peer-to-peer in practice. So and here, here's where we're reading. So peer-to-peer has been uh, acting as fuel for a lot of our longer-term matrix work over the last few months. There have been three main experiments so far, um, and they do they do a full breakdown um, of a lot of these, and they are really, I mean, they 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 just they're on this. In fact, they're on this to the point. There was an update in July, and this is they announced this when they switched to Element, uh, and when they switched to Element. They did release on a test net for, uh, for iOS, which I was kind of surprised that, in fact, it made me wonder the fact that they put it out for iOS. And I tried to dig into this a little bit. The fact that they released the peer to peer functionality of element on iOS first made me wonder if they're using the multi-peer connectivity framework that, um, that Apple devices that iOS has basically built into it and the devices have built into it, which, you know, I I've applauded Apple for implementing that. And basically I I've always felt that at some point they want to use that to make their own internet. I don't know that that's going to happen. Maybe they got to get their satellites up first. Of course, we kind of talked about that this year as well, but uh, it was interesting that they were doing it there, but it's happening. And to, I, I mean, we can only hope that this ends up really working. This is going to take a lot of work. There's a reason I think that a lot of other popular messaging apps or, or communication platforms have not gone fully peer to peer. And that's because it's fucking hard. Like it's a real challenge. And especially when you're baking in encryption, um, I think that they feel, uh, or I, I think that a lot of companies feel and, Admittedly, I don't think Pavel Durov was necessarily wrong about this. Pavel Durov was very critical of Signal uh, a couple of years ago. I think he did a whole post about it. And if I'm misspeaking, I apologize. But basically saying that Signal will never be as popular as Telegram or any other chat app because it doesn't automatically back up your entire chats. Now, on a convention, in a conventional sense, I don't think Pavel Durov's wrong about that. That is something that people are basically at that time were always going to want. And I think a lot of signals moves as, as late are pointing in that direction. Granted, you've already had the ability on Android to do backups for quite some time, but it is frankly a pain in the ass. Uh, and certainly for, you know, even above average people to get to work. I've even had challenges in like making the, the backups for, for signal uh, to really work. And they have directions pages and everything, you know, and you can follow them exactly. And sometimes the codes just don't, anyway, it, it can be a pain. You can always get it to work, but it can really be a pain. There's no, no doubt about that. But I think that said, I think now, uh, well, a, I mean, telegram with like the ton and everything they, they were, looking at going in the direction of being peer to peer with an entire alternative internet, frankly, which is ironic, right? I mean, I guess they would have eventually tried to figure out how you could securely, you know, store a backup of chats and all this other stuff. But regardless, I think now with everything that's been going on in 2020, and I know I don't have to, you know, break that down with everything that's been going on. I think a lot of people are starting to see the appeal 
to having a, you know, on device communication, you know, totally peer to peer only on the local device, uh, you know, client side encrypted conversation or communication platform. People are really starting to get it. Why that's necessary. Okay. Um, and so I think that really matrix slash element is ahead of the curve in wanting to and being able to deliver that wanting to deliver that. I think this is something that even companies, frankly, are going to, to want to, you know, take advantage of again, there is the, you know, the aspect of people wanting that zoom alternative, but I think they want alternatives to basically everything. And I can only hope that this is a trend that really continues where people really do want software done in a way that respects their privacy and ultimately gives them, you know, the maximum amount of control over their data. I have the link in the show notes uh, for this. And I mean, I love it because so many things, so many terms, phrases, and this is all old school stuff that I, for lack of a better way of putting it, grew up with um, that they, I mean, literally they talk about, okay, we need to resolve store and forward, how to make that practical, you know, with relaying messages and, you know, on nodes. Uh, and I, I've been saying, <laughs> I mean, I loved it when it got towards the conclusion and they're talking about, okay, here are the challenges we're running into, but we're working on them. Uh, and, and as soon as they, you know, basically said, we're, we're, you know, we've yet to find a real solution for store and forward nodes. I was like, yeah, I mean, I can't say how many times in the past on this show that I talked about store and forward. Of course, I mean, because, you know, I'm a big fan of Usenet. But anyway, uh, this is a lot of the right moves. And I think it's a team that is up to the challenge. Not only is it a team up to the challenge. Okay. Uh, I mean, I like the fact that, you know, they're they're not doing, <laughs> even though these things seem to have like kind of come and gone, uh, they're not doing, uh, you know, an ICO or anything like that. To, to fund this, you know, they're not pulling any horse shit like that, which I, I couldn't be happier about. This is just where their project is going. And, you know, Matrix gets funding and everything and, and, and great. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm very excited to see where this could go. I'm going to be keeping an eye on it. I think it's exciting that we're already getting where at least mobile apps are able to attempt and test out uh, the peer-to-peer nature of it. There's hard problems to solve within that. But there are already, I mean, some of the problems that get laid out in this initial blog post, um, I know they've already overcome. So very exciting. Uh, again, we're talking about change. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to keep an eye on Threema and we're going to keep talking about that and get into the code audits and everything. But at the same time, if there is a communications platform that comes out, that's truly peer to peer and is on every fucking device you could imagine. Uh, you better believe we're going to be talking about it on Sovereign Tech, and I'm going to be recommending it. Okay, it's not there yet, but it seems like it's getting awfully close. I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. It's nice to have some good news for a change. Hello, Sovereignati. As you know, Sovereign Tech proudly no longer puts content behind a paywall and makes thousands of hours and episodes available to you totally for free. But... If you feel that stirring in your cockles or that special feeling in your heart, I beseech you, nay, I implore you to help the show out by donating. 
Frequenting our sponsors is key, but donations from listeners like you has always made this show go round and round. You can go to SovereignTech.com to set up an automatic monthly donation, or you can donate via the Bitcoin address in the show notes. And now you can even donate with the Cash app at cash.app and use the money tag Sovereign Tech. So many ways to help out the show, and I'm honored by all of it, allowing us to build and be the future. Now, let's get back to the show. Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here's your host, Brian Sovereign. Let us talk some video games, baby. Uh, I wish I could say we're going to keep the good news going, but not really. I guess let's start it off. Uh, there's there's so much news that could be gotten into uh, for the gaming grid this week. Uh, but let me let, let's start this off with with some interesting news anyway. And you could call it good. Uh, certainly odd, but whatever. It's not a bad thing. Um, of course, we know that earlier this year in 2020, the source code for Super Mario 64, one of the greatest games of all time, one of the best-selling and most popular games of all time, uh, originally, of course, for the Nintendo 64, hence the name, ended up uh, leaking. The source code ended up leaking. Now, um, I have played Super Mario 3D All-Stars, by the way. Uh, I know last week we did a Mario 35th anniversary special episode where we talked about all that, got into some of the news around it. Um, I can say that that collection while sparse in what it offers is brilliant, still in execution um, and getting to play Super Mario Sunshine is uh, well, a ray of sunshine, quite frankly, <laughs> in a world that doesn't seem to have too many, uh, a lot, a lot of fun uh, to get into that. Super Mario Galaxy plays like a fucking dream. Um, as I said in my 35th, what did I call it? Plumbers of Fire, I think was the name of the episode that I did last week or that I did recently. Um, as I said in that, you know, Mario 64, the version particularly that that also had its source code leaked, uh, is an inferior product, in my opinion, to the remake. And it is effectively a remake because there's so much added in, so much more story, so many mini games. It might as well be a remake or at the very least, we'll call it a remaster that ended up getting released for or a port that ended up getting released for the Nintendo DS. And was that in 2004, something like that, because uh, I think it was launch title. Mario 64 DS is an amazing, amazing game. Mario 64 is still an amazing game too, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say amazing more than once for, uh, for Mario 64, Mario 64 DS. I'll say it three times. So, you know, the game that's getting ported around, not, I mean, it's not super exciting to me, but the, what is interesting is how many systems it's getting ported around to. And it's not just, again, it's, you know, when it got put onto the switch, we know now that it was done through an N64 emulator which of course has its own excitement because that means more N64 games can end up, uh, you know, on the switch. Right. But for, for it to be ported natively to now, uh, I think they got it for the PlayStation Vita. I think it's available for Android and, uh, also for dreamcast. 
I thought that was nuts. <laughs> I'd love to see it for the Saturn because I have a Saturn modified with uh, with mode um, that that I would. Boy, I'd love to play Mario 64 on that. That I would do on a Saturn. Absolutely. Dreamcast is still pretty cool, but Saturn, that that's where it's at. But also on the PlayStation 2. Of course, it got done for PC earlier, but the PlayStation 2 version. Now this, <laughs> that was something I had to try. It's like, all right, yeah, we got to play Mario on PlayStation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's got it on a Sony platform. We've got to do it. Uh, and it works like a charm. It, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the original 96 version. So the graphics are a little ugly today. Uh, but I was very impressed by this <laughs> and I thought it was pretty slick. Uh, link is in the show notes. If you want to try and find out, uh, find more of that there, there is, you can find the, I think all of the versions you can find on, on GitHub. Um, but certainly you can find the PS2 one there. I can tell you that much. And I tried it and oh yes, it very much works. Uh, just interesting. You know, it might as well be available everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a classic like that, but to play it on, a, on PlayStation, that's, that's a little something special. And I know, Hey, I run emulators on free McBoot. I can play a lot of Nintendo games on there. So it's not like, you know, this is the first time I've ever played something Nintendo on Sony hardware, but it's anyway, just fascinating. So let's move on to the not so good news. I guess we'll stick with Nintendo for right now. And then we're going to get into news that may have somewhat dire repercussions, shall we say for, uh, for Nintendo, but starting it off, this was uh, a bit disheartening for me. Speaking of, of changes, um, the 3ds, the Nintendo new 3ds XL particularly, and the 2DS XL, which was the last, actually that was the new, the new 2DS XL was the last, uh, uh, console handheld, of course, console of the 3DS family that was being produced, uh, has Nintendo has made it official. They have stopped production, um, of the 3DS family entirely. Uh, this was very disappointing for me to read partly because Nintendo, even just uh, a year or so ago, seemed so uh, uh, staunch about that they, they didn't want to end the 3DS. They said, no, there's still plenty of life left in this console. We'll keep going until it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, I guess now at this point, it doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, but it's a real shame, in my opinion, because the 3DS has over a thousand games on it. And a lot of them are great. I don't want to say half. I doubt any system has where half of their games are actually good, but a lot of them are great. I mean, awesome, awesome games and talk about ports. Some of the ports to the 3ds. And I know I believe me, I read it when this stuff was coming out, like when Kirby's extra epic yarn and others came out, everybody's like, well, why aren't you porting this to the switch? I mean, there's very simple reasons why one of them being is screen resolution. You don't have to remaster the entire fucking game. Uh, you know, for it to look good on the 3DS when it was originally for the GameCube or the Wii. And you got to understand that you you have to do that unless you're going to pull some kind of like, uh, uh, you know, progressive scan tricks or not even, uh, I should say upscaling, not progress, progressive scan, but unless you're going to pull some kind of upscaling tricks, but that's not really perfect. And you know, I mean, just look at how many, even Nintendo diehards who are complaining about how little was really done for Super Mario 3D All-Stars to the three games that are included in it. What do you think they would have done if they found out, oh, all they did was upscale Luigi's Mansion? Like, wow, those lazy fucks. 
No, it's, it's fucking expensive to do. And I'm actually very annoyed. I get that people have complaints about the sparseness of the release of 3d all-stars, but at the same time, those games are remastered and they are, you know, they are made to look really, really solid in 720p and 1080p, which they were never designed for. So, or well, at least not 1080p. That took a lot of effort. You know, I, I mean, really, it's, it's really annoying to see people shitting on that collection when I don't think they appreciate just how, you know, how much effort that took and that that was expensive to pull off to, you know, remaster and, or, and smooth out the, the graphics in those games to make them work on all the multitude of ways that the Nintendo switch can display. So there's reasons there's, there's cost concerns as to why these games were getting ported to the 3DS and not to the Switch, even when the Switch was white hot. Um, this is a shame that, again, that the 3DS is over. Now, Nintendo has come out. They have made the official statement that they are not, uh, and, and they're, they specifically use it here. I'm going to read the statement from them. We can confirm that the manufacturing of the Nintendo 3DS family of systems has ended. Nintendo and third-party third part, third games for the Nintendo 3DS family of systems will continue to be available in Nintendo eShop, on Nintendo.com, and at retail. The existing library of more than 1,000 Nintendo 3DS games uh, contains many critically acclaimed titles and can provide... Years of content to explore and, and enjoy. Now, there's a key term there. Let me keep reading, though. We currently have no plans to end any existing online services for the Nintendo 3DS family of systems. Uh, so they currently have no plans. Okay. Online play in Nintendo eShop will continue to be available, and it will be possible to access and re-download all previously purchased content in the foreseeable future. So that's the exact words from Nintendo. Um, now, they say they currently have no plans. And of course, as we have complained many times around digital purchases of games that, you know, eventually an online store shuts down and what do you do then? You know, and physical cartridges does not solve the problem. Stop it. Because you know that updates get pushed after that physical cartridge comes out. And it's not like those updates get written onto the, you know, get written back onto the cartridge or something that doesn't happen. So the argument for physical is horseshit. Stop that. All right. Now, I mean, the only argument for physical is that you don't, it's not attached to an account so it can kind of be played anywhere. Okay. That's an argument for physical, but you know, the idea that, you, you know, understand at all times, you do not, you will never, almost never have the complete game there unless the developers are just done with the game and they decide to do one last physical copy. Okay. All right. Now, so they said they currently have no plans. So the concern is, is that, well, shit, they could shut this down at any time. I think though, and granted, yes, Nintendo can change their mind, but when they said, you know, there are titles that can provide years of content to explore and enjoy, that sounds an awful lot of like, or an awful lot like they are planning on the 3ds eShop being live for years. Now, is that two years? Is that five years? Is that 10 years? I don't know, but it does sound like it'll be a good long while that all of this will be available. So I'm at least, I at least appreciate that. Um, granted while they have stopped production of new units, uh, Nintendo.com itself does sell. And this is really the best way to get a 3ds. They do sell refurbished, uh, uh, 3ds consoles. That's the way to get them. I mean, and they're also a lot cheaper than they would be, say, on Amazon or anywhere else. See what I mean? You can get stuff cheaper elsewhere. Uh, so <laughs> other than Amazon. Um, 
So that's really the route to go. Uh, if you want a 3DS, in my opinion, now is the time. Go out and buy it, okay? Like right now. Uh, because who knows how long they'll have those refurbished ones. And sure, games will be available for years, uh, but I think you're in much better shape to get those reconditioned batteries and everything directly from Nintendo than to deal with people on eBay and scammers on Amazon and so on. Um, so anyway, uh, it's sad news, but also I think the 3DS is still going to be out there for a good long while. And, you know, depending upon how you feel about the rumors that there could be a two screen version of the switch. And I mean, these aren't just rumors. Like, I mean, I think it had to do with patent filings and other things. There is the chance that 3ds games might end up being playable on the switch. And then at that point, there's no reason for as long as the switch is going. And we also have news from Nintendo that they plan on the switch going much longer than the average life cycle of a, of a console. I think that's a fine and dandy thing. We might get into that a little bit more here in a second. Um, but there's a, you know, if you're going to run 3ds games on switch, then there's really no reason at all to shut down the 3DS uh, eShop. None, because it's just the same fucking games. So, and I challenge people, and I've I've seen on like major, you know, gaming websites where people have picked up a 3DS again and how addictive they feel to it. You know, after they've stepped away from it from a couple of years, they go back to it and they're like, wow, I love this thing so goddamn much. Now, I never lost that fervor for that console. I've even argued after a fashion, it could be considered the greatest console of all time. It's certainly the best of its generation because I mean, you know, put it up in my opinion, put the three DS up against the, uh, you know, like the Wii U put it up against the PlayStation three, put it, put it up against all those in that gener in that console generation. And I think it beats everyone just on game offerings, let alone what it can do, you know, as hardware. So, Anyway, um, sad, it's, it's sad, you know, and I know some sovereign tech listeners in the, in the telegram group are like, yep, pour one out for it. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, but, but again, ultimately it's not really dead as long as we have the eShop. Um, and, and you, you will probably always be able to buy new, th uh, new 3ds, uh, as well. You know, who knows what the future is going to end up holding as far as dual screen options from Nintendo. So, uh, moving on from that, uh, in other news. We're going to talk a little bit about Microsoft right now. Uh, in other news, the Xbox Game Pass, which I have uh, applauded, you know, and, and have said, man, like, this is just a no-brainer deal. Why? Why would you not buy the, X the Xbox Game Pass, especially since for the first month you get it for a buck, and then it's five bucks a month after that. And the amount of games that you get, I mean, just for the age of empires games, I mean, streets of rage four is on there. I mean, there's just a slew of amazing games that you get to play, you know, for the yearly cost of one triple a title. It was a no brainer, you know, hate Microsoft all we, you know, all you want, but that just made a ton of sense. Well, what's happening now is that ending, uh, actually it's already ended. It was September 17th. Um, they are no longer offering, I don't think they're offering the $1 deal anymore, but they will no longer. And even if you got in the introductory at the, during the introductory period where you could pay only $5 a month, uh, starting next month, I guess in October, then you will start paying $10 a month. Now is $10 a month still work, still worth it. That's $120 a year. That's the price of two AAA games instead of one. Is it still worth it? Ultimately, sure. 
It is. Ultimately, it's still, frankly, a very good deal, and it might even be a sweeter deal based on the next bit of news I'm about to get into. However, it is no longer the no-brainer. It is no longer the, like, why the fuck wouldn't you, you know? Like, why wouldn't you, for the cost of a, a cup of Starbucks coffee, actually less, why wouldn't you get the Xbox Game Pass and just have it on hand because you never know when you're going to play with a buddy? Well, at $120 a year, that's where, because I, there's a part of me that feels like for the average person, there's really only a couple of games, say a year that you would want to jump on within that. And you could probably for even cheaper than $120, especially if you get them on a sale, you could probably get all of the good games that come out within a year on Xbox game pass for PC. You could probably get them and own them forever and not have to worry about paying a subscription fee or your subscription getting canceled for whatever reason. So at this stage, yeah, it could still be a good value and it does depend on what type of a gamer you are. But if you're the kind that, you know, only plays a couple of games and a couple of new games a year, which frankly only makes sense because some of these games are so fucking long, like you couldn't possibly, I mean, again, it's a problem today. Even if you stuck to one console, or even if you're just a PC gamer, you cannot possibly play all of the games worthwhile playing. And that would even be of interest. Even if you have very narrow interest, you could not possibly play every great fucking game in a year. So it's to the, you know, at $10 a month, now it's in the range where, okay, it's still a good deal. But if you're the, you know, the right kind of gamer, again, it's just, it's not a no brainer anymore. So I don't heartily recommend the Xbox Game Pass uh, any longer. If you're on board with it and you end up using a lot of it and whatever, then I mean, that makes sense. If you somehow have the time, and I'm not knocking you for this, but I'm just saying, if you somehow have the time to play like four or five AAA games a month, uh, then yeah, I think that's still a worthwhile deal. But if you're the kind that, yeah, I just wanted, you know, regular access to Age of Empires and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, this one new release here and there. I don't think it's, I don't think it's as worthwhile. Now it's to the point where no, buy those games on a steam sale and own them forever, you know, and, and don't bother with the Xbox game pass. Cause that could end up getting canceled. But admittedly, this might end up getting sweeter with the other bit of news that ended up dropping just this morning. And that is, in fact, I'm reading from Nintendo life here. Uh, Microsoft has just bought Bethesda, giving it doom fallout, elder scrolls and Wolfenstein. Um, so to the tune of $7.5 billion, Microsoft, uh, has bought, um, Bethesda and which is one of the major, uh, game dev, uh, game developers in the world right now, um, with some of, as you clearly just heard some of the biggest titles out there. Um, I mean, you know, dishonored, I mean, that wasn't on the list, but you know, I mean, just go down it dishonored, uh, again, elder scrolls massive, right. Uh, fallout. Doom, and that includes now. This is where things get interesting for Nintendo, and probably why I was on Nintendo Life. We did get news from a developer for Doom Eternal, which already came out for all the other platforms, but was supposed to come out for Switch at the same time. It ended up getting delayed. We were told it'd come out probably somewhere around December. Uh, just last week, there was news from a developer that Doom Eternal is very close to being done for Switch. Hopefully we still get Doom Eternal on Switch. I want it because I want handheld portable Doom Eternal. Um, but after that, <laughs> now there aren't, admittedly, I don't play a whole ton of Bethesda games. I like Doom. 
uh, even the latest doom games. I like the latest Wolfenstein games. I like those fine. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I do want to play doom eternal cause I know how fucking badass it is. All right. But admittedly after that, I'm okay with not getting another Bethesda game on, on switch, you know, on a Nintendo platform or on whatever other platform, but that's where this is going to get a little nasty is that now, you know, Microsoft has basically, and if they start adding all this stuff into game pass, this is where, again, game pass could end up becoming pretty interesting, right? Elder Scrolls online, a bunch of others. If you get, you know, a bunch of I don't know, loot and free loot and whatever for it, um, I think the more interesting area where this could end up becoming a problem is that they could stop developing for Sony consoles and that's going to hurt Sony. I don't think Nintendo's going to hurt too much. If, if Microsoft says, okay, we're not going to end up releasing anything, you know, by Bethesda, any Bethesda properties to uh, Nintendo consoles anymore. I don't think that's going to hurt Nintendo's bottom line, but Sony's, Oh, I think that could hurt. Um, so this is a power move on Microsoft's part, especially when it comes to the two platforms where they really dominate in gaming, of course, their own, obviously, you know, the, the Xbox line, but then also on PC. This I'll tell you, and, and this is something I don't really have a good answer to. And I want to get an answer. Why Nintendo doesn't acquire, and it's not like they don't have the money and certainly not right now they've got it. Why Nintendo doesn't scoop up and buy uh, dev houses is beyond me. I, I don't understand why they don't engage in that. Um, this is this could be depending upon how Microsoft wants to play it. And admittedly, Microsoft seems to somewhat play nice, nice with other platforms here and there. You think Minecraft? Uh, you think some some other games? Um, I mean, I think it should be telling that there is no conversation. I mean, it's a shitty game, but there is no conversation around Battletoads ending up on Nintendo consoles. And in fact, I mean, really that speaks to the major acquisition, the, the other major acquisition that Microsoft made years ago, which was rare when they bought rare games. Nintendo should have bought rare. Nintendo should have bought rare 25 years ago. Like, like I, I just, I don't understand this you know, what, what Nintendo is thinking, because some of the biggest games of all time, granted the ones that are within their franchises, they still own, but there are some fucking classics that should be on Nintendo consoles right now that should be on switch online, quite frankly, that will probably never be there because, you know, Microsoft has scooped up these dev houses. Big, I mean, it's a huge coup every time that Microsoft does this. I mean, when they bought the dev house behind halo, when they, you know, it's a winning strategy for them, but ouch. Um, I know Sony has some big deals, you know, and they've got final fantasy and everything, but look, you cannot dominate gaming generations, console generations with one game. You can't, no matter how great the game is, the original Xbox couldn't dominate with just halo. Nintendo couldn't dominate with just Mario. They needed more. We can admit that they needed more, right? Um, I think the PS five could be in for a hurting. This is absolutely a response to the release of the PS five. And it's a response, frankly, to the pun intended game changing dominance that the Nintendo switch has had in the industry. Like Microsoft needed to make a move that is going to give them some kind of exclusives. It is only in Microsoft's best interest 
to have exclusives from Bethesda on their consoles in these respective franchises, be it Doom, Elder Scrolls, Dishonored, uh, uh, you know, Wolfenstein, go down the list, Fallout, absolutely. It only makes sense for them to do that. I don't like it. I want, you know, more Doom games and Wolfenstein games on Switch if they're going to come out. I know that they're a bit of a pain in the ass to, uh, you know, to port, but they got to make that happen. Or, you know, maybe this speaks to Project X Cloud, and maybe the Nintendo Switch will be able to take advantage of X Cloud because, you know, then you're just cloud streaming, right? And you're using uh, Switch as the hardware. Now, there's still button mapping that has to happen, and that, that can be a little bit of a pain in the ass, which is always, in my opinion, because even if you don't have to port a game because you're, you know, it's just cloud gaming from a server, remapping all the buttons, that still has to be some serious work throughout games, especially as complex as games are now. Press R3, press this, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, most controllers have comparable button setups, but it's still got to be a pain. Uh, yeah, again, this is this is a huge deal, a huge win for Microsoft. Hashing out almost $8 billion for this company, was that worth it? Yeah, just like it was worth it when they bought Mahjong. Uh, just like, I mean, when they bought Rare. Uh, these are, these are deals that really, I mean, and, and, you know, let's look at this because I, I think really other than Mahjong, the, the best acquisition we can look at from Microsoft would be, uh, when they bought out rare and they have done nothing to bring even classic rare games to, uh, to other platforms, to other consoles. They haven't even bothered. Um, and I, I can't see why they're going to act any different with Bethesda. Uh, I am going to hope again that doom eternal still ends up getting released for the switch that somehow that's like within a contract that because it was before the acquisition that it still has to end up going live. But I also hope it gets honored. And at the very least we end up with a very complete edition of doom eternal on switch so that we're not worried. Uh, are we going to get updates or not? So we'll see how that takes shape, but this is a big deal. And I think could really signal that in the upcoming generation of consoles, Xbox could really take the position that the PS4 had previously, and the PS5 could be playing second or third fiddle uh, for many years to come. Again, I, I don't think Nintendo has a whole lot to worry about here. Yeah, it might not end up getting some of these titles, but then I while I think these titles sold very well on the Switch, um, they are not the Switch's bread and butter, as it were. Um, and Nintendo is diversifying into, you know, a lot of other market sectors. For example, you know, you have uh, the Nintendo theme park, you have uh, the Mario, like a real Mario movie, not, you know, that other one, <laughs> a real Mario movie coming out. Uh, and, you know, a whole slew of areas where Nintendo is really branching out and they know they need to do that, but they've got the franchises that have stood the test of time. They have that baked in historicity that sells. And so, you know, I, not worried about Nintendo here with this, but PlayStation. Yeah. I'd be sweating this, you know, especially just before launch. I mean, if Microsoft comes out and says no new doom games, no new, uh, elder, elder scroll games or whatever coming out for PlayStation, uh, that's going to turn heads that that is going to literally change the makeup of the next console generation. So anyway, uh, hate to end it off with, <laughs> I mean, it's not like bad news, but it's also not good news, right? Hate to end it off that way. At least we got a little bit of hope in this, but it is, I mean, 
again, it follows the theme we've had the entire episode, the theme of dramatic change that is going on. Dramatic change. 2020 has been a year replete with it, no doubt about that. But I think there's a lot of change that is happening underground that people aren't, you know, they're, they're not seeing the, they're not watching the needle move as the earthquake is getting ready to hit. So, and that might be an unfortunate analogy, but I went with it. And so anyway, that's it for this episode of Sovereign Tech. Had other subjects I wanted to get into, but maybe we'll get in another episode here shortly. Uh, of course, if you want to listen to all the past episodes, uh, go to SovereignTech.com. Also, now you can find us on Amazon Music. We are a part of the launch of podcasts on Amazon Music. You can check that out as well. And we'll wrap this one up. I will see all of you woo, on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech, an Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. <laughs>